you will, stand with me as we read from this morning's text. We're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We'll stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we recognize that you, Lord, are sovereign over all. Lord, you are sovereign over creation. You can turn, Lord, water into blood. You have the, Lord, all of creation, the river, the mountains, everything around us, Lord, it is in your hand and, Lord, it is under your power and control. Lord, we recognize, Lord, that we've made idols out of so many things. Lord, we've, we've neglected You. We have failed to worship You. In fact, we've rebelled against You. And we have placed, Lord, above You in our hearts the things of this world. So, Lord, we come here this morning and as we read this story of the Nile being turned to blood, we see the rescue that You are bringing about for Your people. But, Lord, we see the declaration that You are making, that You our God, and there is no other. Lord, I pray we would see that, we would understand that more clearly today. Lord, I pray that we would be able, as we examine, Lord, the text, to see the idols that lie within our own hearts and how we are so quick to create them. Lord, may we see our hearts in light of your truth. Lord, may you grant us repentance unto life. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, Lord, for your revelation and your word. 
May you open it up to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, as we look at what is traditionally known as the first plague, and as we talked about last week, is much easier to be said the second sign, we see something absolutely phenomenologically, supernaturally affecting the nation of Egypt. And we would have trouble trying to relate to exactly just how impactful this miracle really was. So I want us to try to imagine our, in our head, let's try to figure out what would this look like for us. So the question I want to ask first is, what would we do if the primary lifeline of our community was extinguished? What would we do if the primary things that held our society, our culture, our daily existence, what would we do if they completely fell apart? You see, this is what happens in this first plague, this second sign, when the Nile River is turned supernaturally from water into blood. You see, the river in Egypt, the Nile River, it gives life to a thin strip of land. If I were to if I were to put a map of Egypt, if you were to look at a satellite image of the nation of Egypt and you look at it, you're just going to see a big brown tan square, but you're going to see this weaving line of green that goes all the way up to the Nile Delta and then pours out into the Mediterranean. See this little thin strip of land, we've talked about it before, it's one of the most densely populated pieces of land in the world because that's where all of the life of Egypt must remain there because it is completely dependent upon the Nile River. You see, the Nile River, it was central to the transportation of the Egyptians for their commerce, their day-to-day. You have Upper Egypt, which is Southern Egypt, but higher in elevation where the Nile flows from. So you've got commerce that's going in. So trade, the routes, the ways to get your goods from one city to the next are going to be along the Nile. Not only is it transportation, but it's the source of irrigation for the crops of the Egyptians. So the the annual inundations, the flooding of the Nile is what gave fertility to the soil and provided irrigation for water in this barren environment. So it's absolutely essential for the for the ground to be fertile, for there to be water to grow crops so that the people can eat and actually produce enough crops to then be able to export it to the nations around them. It's their only source of water. Rainfall is very, very limited. They're in the desert. They're surrounded on both sides by the desert and it's the Nile that is their source of water. And as we know, you cannot survive without water for more than a couple days. It's also one of their major food supplies because its fish were the staple of an Egyptian diet. And culturally, the the annual rhythms of flooding actually provided a rhythm for the culture as they celebrated the flooding of the Nile for that's what gave them life, what provided for them. 
In fact, that's what led them to begin worshiping the gods of the Nile. So now what would it look like for us? Philip Ryken asked the question this way. He says, what would happen if all these things were taken away from us? So imagine what life in the U.S. would be like if at all at the same time the stock market collapses, the price of gas rises to $40 a gallon, the supply of drinking water everywhere is poisoned and undrinkable, the grocery stores are completely out of food, the electrical systems all go down, and there's no rain and immense heat. Now what would happen to our city, even Harlan, as isolated as we are, but what happened to our nation if that were to happen? It would be absolute chaos, wouldn't it? Absolute chaos. No way to get water, no way to eat, no way to communicate, no way to keep the economy going. Everything would come to a standstill. Chaos would ensue, upheaval would ensue. So that's what we see happen in this plague, this miracle, this sign from God for the Egyptians, for Pharaoh. So this is an absolute ecological, economical disaster. So we can ask two questions. One, why would God allow such a thing to happen? And that would be if we didn't believe that God was supernaturally making this happen. So then we have to ask the question, why would God make such a thing happen? Why would God make such a disaster happen to this people? Perhaps God has had to do something. It's not really much of a perhaps. We know, as we see in the text, God is doing this to make clear that He alone is God. That we must not worship the gods of this world and we are so quick to create gods, to create little idols. Our catechism question dealt with the issue of idols this morning. The problem of idols being created in our hearts. We talked about it in Sunday school with Solomon's story. We see that Solomon disobeys the word of the Lord, marries thousands of women, and by then he's influenced by them to create uh, temples, to build temples up to worship idols, false gods. So what I want us to see, even as we look at this, God is declaring to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to his people, everyone, that he alone is God. Because in the midst of all this, there is idol worship, there are over 80 different deities that were worshipped in ancient Egypt. Deities for the Nile, multiple deities in the Nile, for the flood and the ground, deities of the sky, the land, the sea, and all of these were deities that the priests of Egypt and Pharaoh himself worshipped and then forced the people to worship because they believed by appeasing them they could be pleased and they would receive blessing, they would receive wealth, Fertility, safety, security. See, it's idol worship. And what we see, uh, my first point that I want us to look at is idol worship. It comes in many forms. We look at Egypt and we think, well, they're just 
ancient, ignorant people. But if we were to lose any of the things that were mentioned earlier, we would become panicked. Because we need these things. We depend upon these things. So what's the problem in Egypt? It's the problem of the human heart. It is idol worship. So I, I appreciate what Tim Keller, how he defines what an idol is in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. This is what it means to worship an idol. And we see the definition here, we realize this isn't just the false gods of Egypt, the false gods of Canaan. These are anything that we trust in more than we do God. So what that looked like for Egypt... Pharaoh and even the people of God we see is that they trusted in the gods of Egypt. God knew the problem at the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people as a whole. We look at Israel and we have to remember they've been living in Egypt for 400 years. Now think back to Sunday school lesson. If you're working through the Gospel Project, the story of Solomon. Solomon who creates the temple of God. He builds the temple of God in Jerusalem. He declares that there is no God and that God alone is worthy. It only takes a few decades of prosperity and influences from the culture around him to where he is worshiping idols and building temples for those idols as well. Now if that can happen to the wisest man on earth in the matter of a few decades, how do you think that this has affected the people of Israel? So God in performing this miraculous act is making clear that there are no other gods besides Him. God was going to expose the falsehood of Egyptian idol worship, but He's doing that not just for right then, but so that they would always remember God has proven Himself to be the only God. He was going to do so in a way that would take away any excuse for the people of Israel to return to idol worship. Not that they had any excuse to begin with. An explanation of Pharaoh's role in this idolatry might help. So why was God so... Why was the conflict being between Moses and Pharaoh again and again? We have to understand the role of Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh is the lord of upper and lower Egypt. But he's the single monarch of all Egypt. But here's where a basic Egyptian concept shines through. To the Egyptians, two opposites must be held in balance in order to have totality. Therefore, the Pharaoh is both Horus, the god of lower Egypt, and Seth, the god of upper Egypt. He was both Ra, the sun god, and Osiris, the god of vegetation. The Pharaoh was the bond between heaven and earth, between the divine realm and man. The Pharaoh was believed to fulfill several human and natural needs. As as this connection to the divine, to the gods himself, he was thought to dominate and motivate the natural processes of crops, cattle production, and even the flooding of the Nile. So Pharaoh is the one who's supposed to be in charge of all these things. And the temple worship, the idol worship that exists throughout Egypt, 
all centers around making sure that Pharaoh is glorified, provided for, so that he can ensure that the gods make this happen. Pharaoh was the being who distributed the harvest to the people. It's his power that kept society operating smoothly, that kept his subjects vigorous. So why is, even though all of this is happening to Egypt and in these first few plagues, Israel is affected as well, but why is Pharaoh the attention? It's because Pharaoh is an idol himself and has idols himself. So God is attacking the foundations of their idol worship by showing that the idols have no power. So we see what this looks like for Egypt, for Israel in Egypt. What does this look like for us? What are the, the things that absorb our heart, as Tim Keller says? What are the things that we seek to find fulfillment in that only God can give? Well, we see that anything can become an idol and we see that we worship money. We worship success. We worship family. We worship reputation. We worship control. We worship entertainment. We worship possessions. We worship body image. We worship others coveting after what they have, what they've accomplished. We worship comfort. We worship discipline. And above all, we worship ourselves. You see, we worship these things because we so often trust in these things more so than we trust in God. We trust in these things and many of these things, they're good things, aren't they? But when we turn them into the sole provider of our fulfillment or our security, when we turn the blessings, the good things of God into the things that must give us hope, that must fulfill us, then they become things that we worship, things that will inevitably destroy us. See, we worship these things because we don't trust in God to give us these things in the right amount as He sees fit. We worship these things because we don't trust that God knows when we need and what we need. We don't believe at the heart of that that God has our best interests in mind. See, this is what happened at the fall. Adam and Eve believed the lie, and they listened to the lie that did God really say? He's just trying to keep you down. Take this fruit, and you'll be like Him. We believe that same lie when we trust in these things. We put our hope in these things instead of trusting that God, our Creator, knows what is best for us. 
we don't believe that He has our best interest in mind, and then, just like Adam and Eve, when we know the reality of our sin, and we all know it, we don't want to have our sin exposed. So we hide. We run to the next thing. We don't just create idols out of the things we want, though, do we? We also create idols when we try to make God into our own image, when we try to create gods who will give us these things the way that we want. J.C. Ryle says it best. He says, beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who is heaven for everybody but a hell for none. A God who can allow good and bad to be side by side in time but will make no distinction between good and bad in eternity. Such a God is an idol of your own. As truly an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible, and beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. So if we don't just flat out make a God out of the things we want, we make a God out of what we want and create a God who will only give us what we want. We make gods just like the Egyptians by saying, If I do all these things, I'll get what I need. I'll get what I want. I'll be happy. But see, what happens is when we make gods like that, they always end up providing nothing that we want. They always end up coming up short from what we desire. See, I think about it kind of like coming to two forks in a road. Every avenue of idol worship is another journey venturing away from the reality that we must face, which is our rebellion against the Holy God. This is why, though, those paths keep finding themselves circling back as they come up short. We circle back and we come to the same fork in the road, yet we insanely, and it's a true definition of the term, we keep going down the road of idol worship instead of creator worship because we want to avoid being exposed for what we are. This is exactly what we read in John's Gospel as Jesus is explaining the problem of the human heart to Nicodemus. In John 3, verse 19 through 20, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Idol worship, it's within every single one of our hearts. And it comes about when we desire something and we desire that thing above God and we doubt God and His goodness and His wisdom. Martin Luther said in the Sunday school lesson this morning, he says, now I say whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. Think about that. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really, that is really your God. So, when everything dies down and you get home in the evening, 
you avoid your responsibility, you're tired maybe, where does your heart go to to find solace and comfort? Is it God and His promises? Or is it the number on your bank statement? Is it God and His promises? Or is it the bill of good health? Is it God and His promises? Or is it the tidiness or the quality of the possessions in your home? Is it God and His promises? Is that what we go to? Is that what we confide in when we come to despair? Or is it the the family that we have, the friends that we have? Whatever we confide in, that is our God. Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, and even the people of Israel, as we see, are confiding in these false gods. Doing whatever they can to appease the gods of the Nile, the gods of the sky, the gods of the desert, the gods of war, the gods of fertility. Doing whatever they can. But they do so because they can control it according to their minds. But what God is doing, God is making clear that those false gods are not real gods. They have no power. He's making clear that the only hope that Israel has, that the only hope that anyone in the world has, is the trust in Him. So what does God do? He attacks the idols of Egypt by exposing the weakness of their supposed gods. He attacks the idols of Egypt by proving they have no power. God's demonstrating who is really in control. God destroys idols. So what do we see? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the text, we see verse 17. He makes it clear. He says, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And he's saying this again. It's, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Remember, it's, it's the divine name given to Moses, given to the people of Israel, the covenant name that I am who I am. There is no other like me. He's saying, you will know that I am Yahweh and there is no other by what I am about to do. God destroys idols. For because He is God and there is no other, He will not allow there to be any other gods. There is no other gods. He will destroy sin. He will destroy evil because He is all holy. He is righteous. He is just. God has ordered Moses to go after the center of Egyptian life. And you notice when he goes about this, he meets Pharaoh early in the morning. God says, go to Pharaoh early in the morning. Verse 15 there. He says, maybe he was doing the same. What we see is that maybe he's doing the same thing that Pharaoh's daughter. You think this book of Exodus started with Moses being found by Pharaoh's daughter. Of course, this is 80 years prior. Who's at the Nile early in the morning. Maybe he was going there to sacrifice, but more likely he was going there to pray or give homage, ritual sacrifice to the gods of the Nile. So what does Moses do? He shows up and declares, you are going to know who 
Yahweh truly is, that He is the only God. And this is how it's going to happen. God sends Moses and He turns the water of the Nile, the water found in, it says, vessels of stone and wood into blood. So it wasn't just the water in the Nile itself, but as the the text says, it's in the canals. It's in the irrigation systems of the Egyptians. It's in the ponds where they had reservoirs of water. It's in the, the vessels that they have, so the water that they had stored, it turns into blood, every single bit of it. This isn't some just natural occurrence. This is the supernatural act of God to reveal He has the power to turn water anywhere and everywhere in the blood. He is the only one who controls the source of life. God sends Moses to turn that water into blood so that they would know He and He alone is Creator God. We hear this this theme repeated in Isaiah 46. We read, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God destroys idols so that He might make His glory known. God destroys idols because it is that idol worship which will destroy us. And what we must see in this is we see this act act against Egypt, this act that puts in danger the lives of everyone in the entire nation. We must see this judgment is grace. That's why would God do such a thing? Because it is grace for God to demonstrate His power. It is grace that God demonstrates in this judgment. Judgment is grace because what does idol worship lead to? What does idol worship lead to? Let's just think practically first what this has looked like in the nation of Egypt. In the context of Egypt, it's led to the oppression of an entire people group. They had to build the Pharaoh's store cities because Pharaoh was worshipped because he's the connection to the divine. He's the source of life. He's the one in whom the whole nation depends upon. This idolatry in the form of Pharaoh worship and then the God worship of Egypt, it's actually led to the impression of an entire people group because Pharaoh believes he's more worthy than them. That's just practically speaking, isn't it? It's led to people completely placing their hope in a class of men, the priests of the temples of Egypt. The priests and Pharaoh who claim to be sources of divine power All the while, what are they doing? They're padding their own pockets, oppressing those who could not help themselves. That's practically what idol worship leads to. That's practically what idol worship leads to in our own context. We idolize those who have fame and power and money and control. We 
worship our politicians who make all the promises in the world that they're going to make our lives better. We see the connection. But these are just the side effects of idol worship. David, when he recognizes his own sin, his own worship of lust and power and control, he recognizes all those and confesses them in Psalm 51, but he recognizes rightly when he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Our idol worship, it leads to consequences that hurt others. But most of all, it's an offense against a holy and righteous God. The idol worship that exists in Egypt has led an entire nation and the nation that lies within them in Israel to believe that there's no hope for themselves in this life or eternity apart from either their uncontrollable fate or the futility of appeasing hapless divines that are fickle, can't make up their mind. Yet, they've willfully worshipped these gods. They've willfully went after these things. And in doing so, they are condemned so are we. They and we all remain condemned because we have rejected by worshiping these things, these false gods, these idols. We've rejected the one Creator. Paul's words come to mind in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have all worshipped things other than the Creator, and we all stand condemned. What we must see as God declares judgment upon the nation of Egypt, judgment upon Pharaoh, and judgment against the false gods that they worship, it's grace because God shows the futility of trusting in those things. God shows the destructive power of false gods and declares His goodness and righteousness. You see, this is grace because God exposes the consequences of false gods, the consequences of idol worship. And until we see the destructive power of our idols, we cannot see the judgment of God against them as grace. Until we see 
how futile it is to trust in false gods, how futile it is to trust in the things that we are placing our hope in, the worldly things, until we see the futility of trusting in creation rather than the Creator. We won't see the judgment of God as grace. But see, this is the the thing here. Judgment prevents ultimate destruction. God's judgment, as we see evidenced in the, the story of the plagues of Egypt, it prevents ultimate destruction for the nation of Israel is rescued by God showing the futility of worshiping false gods. This judgment is grace. And it's grace so that we would know who truly is God. It's judgment that shows that sin has consequences. It brings upon the condemnation of a righteous God on us, but sin also brings about the consequences that has consequences on others. We see at the end of this story that it wasn't just Pharaoh who bore the consequences, but the people of Israel whom he had been leading astray suffered. Suffered probably even more so than he did. But even they did not turn and repent, but they dug along the Nile to find water to drink. Demonstrating how we'll seek to find rescue and help from anyone other than our Creator. So how is God's judgment a form of grace? Jim Hamilton says it this way, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. This pattern, it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. When God saves His people, He delivered them by bringing judgment on their enemies. Salvation for all believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross the judgment that we all deserve, because as Paul made very clear, we have all fallen short. We have all turned against God. God's judgment against sin is grace towards us, for He will not let sin reign. God is demonstrating that He alone is good. He will not let sin or evil win. God's judgment against sin is grace towards us and that He declares its downfall and He declares the offering of salvation for those who repent and believe in Him. We don't see repentance exist in the latter part of chapter 7. Instead, we see Pharaoh, as his magicians are able to conjure up through some trickery, as the, using the same language as they did with the serpents, they're able to produce the same effect. Here I've got a question for you. If they were able to produce magic, they were able to turn one thing into another thing, why didn't they turn the blood back into water? Because false gods cannot overcome the power of the one true God. False gods have no power over God, Yahweh, the Creator of all. So what's the purpose of it all? As we read in verse 17, God says, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am who I am. 
I am the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-making God with the people of Israel. I will show that there is no other like me. What's the purpose? It's that God is declaring who He is. You know what the solution to our idol worship is? It's to know who God really is. It is to see Him in all His righteousness, His glory, and His grace towards us. One commentator claims that the Egyptian priests, he, they washed their idols early every morning. They went to clean them, to ceremonially dip them in the Nile every morning. And what's interesting here, wood and stone, if we say this isn't just vessels, but we look at wood and stone, the language that's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that wood and stone is used to describe idols that are crafted by men. Always talking about the foolishness of worshiping those things. So if that is true, we look at one of the things that God is proving in the midst of all this. God turns the water that they use to ceremonial cleanse their idols. He turns it into blood. God turns the river into blood to show them how utterly worthless and contemptible it was to worship gods of wood and stone. God pronounces judgment on this false worship. And He does so in its grace. It's grace so that we would not, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and we ourselves, when God pronounces judgment on these things, it's grace because it shows us that we should not place our hope in the things of this world, but only in God alone. We ask, what is the purpose of this? I have to ask the question, what false gods have you been worshiping? What are the things which you have elevated above God? What are the things that you go to first when you desire comfort and security? When you desire joy? What are the things that you go to first? There's also a message of life in this text. See, Desmond Alexander says, when God changes water into blood, the source of life becomes a symbol of death. With blood rather than water flowing through the land of Egypt, even the mighty Nile, which the Egyptians honored because of its life-giving waters, was not beyond being transformed by the awesome power of Yahweh. God changes that which gives life and He turns it into a curse. God is able to turn what gives life He's able to turn it into a curse. That's not it. Because God is also able to turn something that is cursed into something that gives life. You want to know the prime the ultimate example of that power Paul says in Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God turned what they thought was giving them life into a curse. God turns what is cursed according to men and makes it the source of life for all. We stand cursed. Cursed because of our sin. Cursed because of our idol worship. We stand condemned. But in Christ, out of whose body flowed a river of blood, flows life for those who will believe. Is that not just wonderful news? What the world saw as a curse, God used to give life. There is life for those who repent and believe. Will you believe? Will we believe?